Hey there, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Drip Podcast, the podcast where we need movies like we need our coffee. As always, I am Scott Lentz, here with my good friend and co-host, Christian Ubius. Christian, before we get into the show today, I want to wish you a happy Sundance week. Sundance, the film festival, of course, has been going on for a couple of weeks now. It has not been going on for a couple of weeks. It started last week. It started last week. And now it's going this week. Now it's going this week. Couple weeks. That's two. A couple is two, Christian. <laughs> it has definitely not been going on for 14 days. Well, last week and this week. Of sure, course, not fine, a full fine, 14 fine, fine, days. Fine, fine. Before we keep picking nits and splitting hairs, Christian, I'm just trying to say we were actually watching some of these movies together last or this year. We are. You had done this with others previously, and now I have jumped into the fray here. So exciting to be watching some of these. Uh, I mean, not e- barely even brand new, like fresh out the womb, not even picked up by distributors yet movies. It's exciting stuff. Tomorrow is going to be a very full day for us. Yeah, we gather. It's, it's currently Thursday, and we sat down on Tuesday night to watch two movies, and we are planning to spend the entirety of our Friday watching however many more. So <laughs> we'll see how that goes, but it's going to be a blast. A true film festival atmosphere as we just go from one to the other. Now... Yeah, I'm excited. Let's, yes, let's go into, let's go into what we're doing this week. Let's, let's go into what we're doing this week. Of course, this is Cinema Drip, the show where we need movies like we need our coffee. And for once, we're making a pilgrimage to a very important city to coffee. And that, of course, is Seattle, home, home, uh, home place of Starbucks, for all you Starbucks God fans bless out Starbucks. there. And also the setting for half of the movie, Sleepless in Seattle. The next and final movie in our Nora Ephron blend of the month, as we've been taking a month to look at some of her, or all of her, Oscar-nominated screenplays. Christian, this is yet another movie that I was coming to and I was already a fan of, although it's a movie I had seen in my adult life, had no nostalgia attached to it. But this is one that you were watching for the first time, correct? It is one that I watched for the first time. How are you feeling going into it, based on the previous two movies we had seen? I think I have a better grasp of Nora Ephron's writing style. I also think I'm understanding what Silkwood was. So, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, Nora Ephron, these days, I feel like if you're not already schooled in her, in her writing or in her films that she directed as well, she's most associated with these extremely famous romantic comedies. And so people tend to think that everything she did was in this vein. And of course, that's not true. We watched Silkwood, which is very much not a romantic comedy. It's very much a real-life thriller. And I also watched Heartburn, doing a little Nora Ephron, Mike Nichols homework. Is it like Silkwood? It is not like Silkwood, although it does have Meryl Streep. But it's adapted from her own novel, which was inspired by her divorce from Carl Bernstein, who's the journalist who's one half of the team from All the President's Men. And it's sort of a sort of a comedy, sort of a drama. Definitely sad as she is uh, losing her marriage to this person. So, again, not a romantic comedy, I would I would say. Um, but she's obviously a very skilled writer and, and is able to do it in multiple mediums. And she worked elsewhere, of course, more than in just the movies we're talking about on the show here this month. She's got more movies that she directed, more that she wrote. So, plenty of more effort out there if you've been intrigued by this blend. I know I, I'm looking forward to watching more of hers. Now, um, 
What's the what's the best way to proceed? Okay, we always do this. We need to talk about what this movie is, like what the plot is of this movie, because I did not know about this plot. <laughs> you didn't know, Christian. I, I, I did not know that Sleepless in Seattle was a radio station, because that is the premise. So Meg Ryan plays... She's back. She is back, and she plays Annie, who is a woman engaged who lives in Baltimore. Um, Tom Hanks plays the other guy. Sam. Who lives in Seattle, whose wife died, I think, at the, at the ish beginning of the movie. The, the very first shot of the movie is him and his son standing at the cemetery. It kind of zooms out and shows the funeral. So it's right at the beginning. But I think the core of this movie happens about a year and a half after her death. Right. Okay. And so his son calls this radio station late at night saying that he wants his dad to get a new wife. And the radio station is like, put your dad on the phone. And then throughout the night, apparently it became a massive hit and sensation where tons and tons and tons of women from all over the country heard about this apparently very attractive man from The Voice they could tell. They could just tell, Christian. Any uh, man who's that honest about his emotions. <laughs> and all start to write in. One of those women who writes in is Annie, listening to this, who doesn't know what to do because, again, this woman is engaged. And it's, it's this connection or emotional connection Annie seems to be making with Sam without having met him and Sam's desire to move on from his past, but also uncertainty of how to do so. I have never seen An Affair to Remember. Yes, um, this movie was heavily inspired by and references repeatedly the movie An Affair to Remember, which is also a, a one that I haven't seen. I have seen The Dirty Dozen. <laughs> <laughs> Briefly referenced in a pretty funny scene, of course. But, but yes, so let's... I mean, should we jump into it? Is there anything else we need to watch? I mean, this was co-written. This was not exclusively Nora Ephron. No, no, not not only that, but she actually wasn't even attached to the film early on. It was the dream of one of the three credit co-writers, Jeff Arch. This is his, like, Hail Mary script that he managed to get seen by some studio executives who, although there was some reticence about the idea of the two romantic leads not seeing each other until the end of the movie, which was his his like idea for a script. There was some reticence about that, but the script was good enough and emotionally charged enough that they thought it could work. And so it starts getting passed around Hollywood a little bit, passed around these studios. There's different directors attached to it. They bring in David S. Ward, who's the second credited writer here who won an Oscar for The Sting, and they get him to punch things up. It was his idea to have Jonah, the son, call into the radio station and not have Tom Hanks call in himself. And eventually, while they're still trying to make this project work, Nora Ephron gets pulled in for the final rewrite, and of course, she ultimately would ascend to the director's chair as well. And this is, if, you're, if you've been keeping track, the first movie this month that she actually directed, uh, and, and not just wrote. This is the second movie she ever directed. So, okay. Let's, let's start, oh, Rosie O'Donnell is in this movie. 
Rosie O'Donnell's here. Rob Reiner is acting here after directing the previous movie. Bill, Bill Pullman, Pullman is captain here. of the Titanic. <laughs> he was he captain. He was engineer or something. Um, I don't even think he's in the Titanic. Bill Pullman was a he, he was the guy. He was the dude who said um, the ship will sink. This ship can't sink. Oh, no. I assure you. It That's can't. Victor Garber, who was Wait. also in this movie. Okay, Victor Garber. <laughs> <laughs> Victor Garber and Tom Hanks' real-life wife, Rita Wilson, who is playing his sister in this movie. And they were definitely already married. <laughs> nice. Good times. Yeah. Um, also, this, I want to mention this briefly. This movie was shot by, shot by Sven Nyqvist, of all people. Who is Sven Nyqvist? He won multiple Academy Awards for his work with Ingmar Bergman, who's one of the like great directors... <laughs> Of world Ingmar cinema. Bergman is, is, is a name we do not say on this podcast. We don't say Ingmar Bergman very often on, on this show, but... That's like referencing Godard. Eh? Yeah, exactly. He's, he's one of the most like influential and well-known directors of world cinema, and <laughs> Sven Nyqvist was one of his like go-to guys for most of his career. And uh, Nyqvist, ended up, he passed away in 2006, so this isn't even close to the end of his life. He's got many years left to go, but he's working in Hollywood at this time, and he's, he's making Sleepless in Seattle, man. <laughs> All right. I'd just love to see that. Look, look, look. This movie was also a big box office success. Two over two hundred million dollars. Over two hundred twenty million dollars made for a budget of twenty one. So huge, what the huge frick? hit. Like, Tom Hanks, man. I mean, we we barely got into the Tom Hanks of it all. We we he, know what Meg Ryan's about to. He's post. This is Tom Hanks. Post big, which I think was definitely a massive box office play for him. This is the same year that Philadelphia comes out, which is the movie that he wins his first Oscar for. But this is right before um, Forrest Gump. So, yeah. and, and, and I mean, Turner and Hooch had come out at this point. So a couple of other Tom Hanks vehicles, but I don't, he, I don't think he was like the Tom Hanks as we know him. I mean, he's like about to be he's the Tom Hanks to as we know him. He's exploding right now because he's been leading movies for, for several years by this point. A League of Their Own came out just before Slipless in Seattle. Uh, big, as you noted, got him his first Oscar nomination, and that was back in 88. So, I mean, he was getting, he was about to explode. And this, the box office success of Slipless in Seattle, plus Philadelphia and Forrest Gump winning him back-to-back Oscars, then he's, he's Tom Hanks forever, man. But, yeah, he is on the up-and-up at this point. I mean, he's already an A-lister. He's about to become a triple-A triple lister. So... Huge part of this movie's success, of course, is, is him rising. Meg Ryan, of course, featured last week on One Harry Met Sally. Um, they actually starred together in a movie called Joe vs. the Volcano, which came out a couple years earlier in 1990, which I haven't seen yet, but one that I'm going to try to get around to. Okay, let's... We need to come to this conclusion right now. Okay. Meg Ryan looks amazing in this movie. Meg Ryan looks amazing in this movie. <laughs> you are correct. I... There, there is one scene when, when Meg Ryan steps out of an airport and Tom Hanks sees her and he doesn't like he has never met her before. He no just idea who sees she her, is. just sees her, and just stops <laughs> and wants to follow her. And it's so believable. It's so <laughs> believable. Um, it's she, it's funny too because I feel like when Harry Met Sally is a little bit more beloved for its costumes. Like there's a lot of love for the the sweaters that they're wearing in that movie and just like the late 80s fashion I love Meg Ryan's Meg Ryan's hair like the braid that she had the yeah but but this I was gonna say like her her just her styling in this movie is a little bit better to me just the, the hair and the makeup that she's working with 
And when Harry met Sally, her hair is changing a lot. And it, sometimes it's, it's very much an 80s style. And I don't know enough about hairstyling and the history of it to comment on how 90s her hair is in this movie, but a little more timeless, in my opinion. And she, yeah, she's absolutely beautiful in every, every scene that she's in. Okay. Okay. Let's start. We, 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 we should start. Let's do it. Having now entered into a film, Scott, directed by Nora Ephron, what can we confidently say are staples of her style, whether they be directorially or as a writer? Yeah, the staples of Nora Ephron's style. I honestly think her, her character's wittiness and chattiness, like, that is a key part of her style. And I think that gets commented on often when it comes to, in particular, Jewish screenwriters. Nora Ephron, to my understanding, culturally Jewish, maybe not a practicing, uh, deeply religious person during her life, but that's something you know that was commented on about Woody Allen, who was also a very famous Jewish writer in Hollywood. And Nora Ephron, when Harry and Sally, we talked about how it was kind of unfairly compared to previous Woody Allen movies, but maybe not unfairly, but compared to Manhattan, other movies like that. So a similar chattiness and a wittiness, but without some of the, either the, the self-sabotage that, and the self-critique that Allen's characters would engage in, there's not a lot of that. It's, it's much more real and naturalistic uh, people. But there's also a pop culture literacy that's kind of fun, and that would forecast where a lot of a lot of movies these days are definitely more familiar with their pop culture people are talking about other movies within the movie but both one harry met sally and sleepless in seattle feature people talking about movies extensively sleepless in seattle especially where they're not only talking about an affair to remember but watching it multiple times i mean when harry met sally they watch casablanca when harry met sally watch casablanca yeah people are there's this sort of engagement with the movies and a very knowing uh, extension of the knowledge that we already have culturally and sometimes that comes off as sort of hokey as if you don't feel confident enough in your own writing to sort of create your characters and give them things to bond over but when Nora Ephron is doing it she's building off of this Hollywood history that she's aware of and trying to extend in her own writing and Sleepless in Seattle again is is cribbing from another movie taking plot points almost but it's doing it in such a new and fresh way that referencing the history, to me at least, doesn't feel cheap. It feels like she's winking at this classic Hollywood plotline that is now working in the 90s. So that kind of intelligence about Hollywood history and using it in a fun way, plus her witty and chatty, if not self-critical characters, makes for a very, very fun screenwriter. Um, I'm trying to compare it to, in my head, to Silkwood and Heartburn, these other more dramatic movies that I've seen, but what about you, Christian? What do you think are some of the hallmarks you've noticed? It's definitely the patience that that she holds. Now, um, clearly, in a romance, you are not going to see the individuals get together until the very end. But she has this way of keeping her pace of not like throwing in necessarily a a gratuitous scene in the middle of them getting together. She knows that the explosion of emotion do- isn't always necessarily an explosion. It's sometimes just an internal look or glance or a half-stated line. 
Um, and it's something that you referenced last week that, that I remember. Characters here rarely raise their voice. Screaming and the loudness are not staples of her style. So what I, well, actually what I appreciate from these two movies over Silkwood is that she has a nice use of music, of just like calming music that actually um, kind of interprets the emotions these characters are feeling for me. The soundtrack to Sleepless in Seattle is fantastic. Yeah. When Harry Met Sally, famously the Harry Connick Jr. soundtrack became like a bestseller. I'm pretty sure it charted quite high. It was very uh, a popular one to add to your CD collection at the time. And Sleepless in Seattle actually gets him an Oscar nomination, is nominated for two Oscars, Best Original Screenplay and Best Original Song. And Harry Connick Jr. is one of the nominees there for A Wink and a Smile. But the, the jazz standards and other songs that they use in this movie give it, like you said, such a good vibe, good atmosphere. It's the kind of music where, I, I mean, I like to listen to that all the time. I know some people don't prefer to listen to it. They're not old like I am, but listening to those calm, jazzy songs while this wistful and sentimental cross-country romance is starting to happen, it just settles you into this really comfortable, nostalgic place where even if you haven't seen the movie before, you can still get some of that nostalgia. And I, I think it works. Uh, fantastically. The question that should be asked. Uh, another question. The chemistry between the two leads. And the reason that this is an interesting question. The two leads don't really interact with each other ever until the very, very end. And so, well, there's like one scene where they see each other in Seattle, but that's that's like... I, I jotted a little note down, Christian. That comes 72 minutes into the movie, I'm pretty sure. And it's like an hour and 40, hour 45. So, but we are, we are rooting for these two people to meet. Though one lives in Seattle and one lives in Baltimore. Why are we doing that? Dude, first of all, it's because it's Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. <laughs> They're sort of like an undeniable piece to that. These people had acted in a movie before. Or we know we're watching a romantic comedy. We know that we like Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, and we absolutely want them to get together. <laughs> so there's definitely a, a movie star piece here that makes this romance work. And obviously, very few movies do this, where the characters tr truly do not know each other before falling in love. They play with it. Like in another Nora Ephron movie, you've got Male, which is also inspired by a classic movie called The Shop Around the Corner. But... You've got male, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan are once again involved in a romantic comedy plot, but they do know each other. They just start, they're chatting with each other online and like instant messenger, and they don't know that it's the other person. So they can play with that a little bit, but to truly not have them see each other or talk to each other until almost the end of the movie is a very, very bold stroke. And it works because of the strength of these two leads. And I think we get to fall so head over heels for each of them in their respective lives because their own stories are so compelling. Where you have Hanks and his son Jonah, who we haven't mentioned yet, is played by Ross Malinger. Uh, and the two of them are trying to move on from the loss of their wife and mother. They've moved to Seattle from Chicago to start over. And we see Annie, who is engaged to Walter at the beginning of the movie and celebrating with her family. 
but we start to get the sense that maybe he's not the right person for her, even though he's a wonderful person. And she's having second guesses and doubts about their relationship. And so we get these two Hollywood stories that we know and love, the person trying to move on after a loss and the person trying to find their true love and unsure about the person they're with. And they somehow get to bring these stories together from Baltimore to Seattle. And I think it's the strength of the writing and the strength of the performances as individuals that get us to fall for these people so that we are actively rooting for them to find each other. And obviously it's a romantic comedy. We know it's going to happen, but <laughs> uh, we're still rooting for them every step of the way. Because you see, yeah, you see their longing. You see their longing for each other. And you're really made to believe that, that people so far away are made for each other. Despite, look, they have one thing in common. And as that, what was that baseball player who they think is like the best? <laughs> I think it's Brooks Robinson. Brooks Robinson, whom they think is the best ever. That's the one thing that we get that's in common between the two of them. But I think it's also the juxtaposition of both of the relationships that they're in. Because when you see Annie with her fiance, Walter... You, you can believe that she likes him. You do not believe that she loves him. And when you see... Yeah, that's, when, that's a really good way of putting it. When you see Sam with... Oh, what's her name? The, he, he starts dating a new woman whose name is Veronica, I believe. When you see Sam with Veronica, you can tell that he's trying. But you can also tell that there's maybe something more. And it's maybe the movie would not have worked if there had been multiple scenes with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan where they're interacting with each other. But by just having them be in each other's space in two moments, look at each other, and try to, I don't know, under understand or just like sit, we're left to sit in the possibility of hope. We don't know if this relationship is actually going to work out. But it's, it's not about that. It's, this is one of the best movies to play the, like, what happens the next day game with. <laughs> like, I mean, neither of them lives in New York. Neither, they need to go back home. Neither of them lives in New York. He's going to be like, so how'd you find me? And she's going to have to go into the details of her finding him, which includes, but is not limited to, a private investigator. <laughs> uh, I, I looked it up. It's Victoria, not Veronica. My bad. But Victoria. Poor, poor Victoria. Really getting getting uh, elbowed out of the way. He has her romantic weekend at the Holiday Inn planned, and that gets canceled because Jonah flies to New York unaccompanied. <laughs> the um, use of computers back then is staggering. Oh yeah, the the early '90s computers is great. Um, we should bring that back. <laughs> we should bring back precocious children who can book their friends' plane tickets from the comfort of their living room. Because how did they pay for it? I, I, did they put it on someone's credit card? Or? That's what I think. So, so young Jonah has a friend here, and she's played by the actress Gabby Hoffman, who's actually gone on to an adult acting career as well, so you might recognize her, but her name's Jessica. And Jessica's parents are travel agents. And so I'm assuming that Jessica knows how to book people flights and just put it on the company card or something. <laughs> Either that, or they have some deal where they can get like a free ticket, or, and she just gamed the system. I have no idea, but you know, it's one of those movie situations where we, we look past that. You know, I think one of the things that also brings these two people together is the way that they that Efron occasionally will um, basically have them talking to each other without having them talking to each other. One of the early scenes in the movie where he 
where Sam begins this, you know, conversation with the radio host. And he's talking through his life, why he can't sleep, if he thinks he's ever going to be able to move on from his wife. And Annie is listening to it in the car. She's driving to go, strangely enough, see Walter's family. They're leaving her family on Christmas to go in to see Walter's. And she's tuning into the radio show, and we see... It's a great bit of acting just by Nora Ephron. It's the way that the, she holds the camera. She's just driving a car. The camera's not flying around her, swirling and, and Great swinging. piece of directing. Yeah, it's just held steadily on her, and we get so drawn in to her emotions. And it's not like it sits there on her for the full five minutes. We're cutting back to Sam and Jonah as they're talking to the radio show back in Seattle, but Meg Ryan can really hold the camera. And we see the ways that she is so invested in this guy's story and starts longing for this love that he apparently had because he's describing his wife in these beautiful terms and he, he gets asked, you know, why'd you, like, what, what did you love the most about your wife? And he's like, how long is your show? You know, and, and, and saying these loving things about this person he clearly still misses and she realizes that's what I want. You know, someone who is that deeply in love with me and even though Walter is so nice, like that may not be what we have. And they even, she even has a moment where she finishes his sentence before he can get it out. I forget the full sentence, but basically they say the word magic at the same time, where she kind of whispers that to herself in the car, and Sam says it over the phone. And we're connecting these two people without them having to act across from one another, without them having to be in the same location. And I think that's one of the strengths of this screenplay. I want to give kudos to Jeff Arch as well for his original idea. I'm not sure whose idea this particular scene was, but again having that moment where the, where she's finishing his sentence you know that's that that classic romantic trope where you know they're so in love they finish each other's sentences they're doing that and, and it's moments like that that help these people start to feel connected to us as the audience before we see them on screen together i'm also going to say that there's this what is it there, there there's this deep longing and hope that you see within that as she is in that car alone and being swept away by this man's story that already you're like wow she has not shown any of these emotions with Walter it is her basically at times exasperation at work as she goes through what it would mean to have that kind of relationship or, or to, to think about, or as she talks through with her friend, played by Rosie O'Donnell, just what, what is going on. It, it's like she never talks about this with Walter. Walter is just secondhand. Walter is an allergy that she needs to put up with. And I'm saying that because they riddled him with every single allergy known to man. This poor guy. He's allergic to strawberries. <laughs> and there's no chemistry between the two of them whatsoever. I, what's funny is I honestly think there's there's just enough chemistry where you can actually believe that these two people would start a relationship and even maybe decide to get married. And, you know, we're not at a point in our life, we're, we're in our mid-20s here, uh, where we've seen enough couples like this. But I feel like that is just such an honest truth about life is that there are couples out there who fall head over heels madly in love when they're, when they're 17 and 18 years old and they stay together the rest of their lives. And... There are couples who start dating in their mid-30s and they're like, you know, I'd rather be with someone than not be with someone. And 
maybe my life's not going to be a movie, and this person's going to take care of me. They're going to be kind to me. We could raise children together, and they probably wouldn't be in therapy in their in their later life. You know, <laughs> like let's make this happen. And and there's enough chemistry between Meg Ryan and Bill Pullman that you can actually believe their relationship without. But, but still know that she, why she's getting out of it later on in the movie. Um, poor, poor Walter. A very, very nice person. Very warm gentleman. And, and alas, he's, he's left alone <laughs> on Valentine's Day. There's this very crucial line to this movie that Jonas says. When, who, who is his friend? Jessica? Jessica, yeah. Yeah. When he ta- starts to talk to Sam about past lives and that's Jessica with something Jessica has put in him he's Jessica's like, the strangest little girl she's hilarious and he goes yeah uh, it's like you and her are pieces of a puzzle and in a past life you didn't get together so now you have a chance in this life to get together and when you do that puzzle gets completed and I'm like that is the cutest thing that is the absolute most adorable thing because it really points out to these two. We don't know how they're going to get together. We don't know how they're going to make anything work. But we do believe that despite how far away they live and despite how creepy it's been that she's hired a private investigator <laughs> and, and, and despite how he knows absolutely nothing about her and she knows nothing about him, these are puzzles that should find their way together. By the way, maybe we should say it. Um, hiring a private investigator. This is, okay, this is a movie. Yes. That also does not pass the Bechdel test. Oh my gosh. <laughs> the Bechdel test is a flawed metric, of course, but you are correct. Now, Pretty sure Rosie O'Donnell, every time he's on screen, they're talking about... Well, you know, maybe early on in the movie, they were, they are, they're journalists. They work for a newspaper, I'm pretty sure. Maybe a magazine. And early on in the scene, there's the two of them talking with two of their male co-workers. And they, do, they have one of those conversations about like you know, the quirks of men and women. Does that scene count? I forget the specific rules of the Bechdel test. I think you need at least two. I thought, uh, yeah, it might be because it's two women having a conversation. Two women who are named characters having a conversation about something other than a man. So maybe because that's a room of four people, it might not count. But Now, uh, I will say, though, whenever Sam is not thinking about dating, he's sad. Very, very melancholy guy, that Sam Baldwin. Which, to be fair, he lost the love of his life and the mother exactly. to his son. So, so b- relationships are on both of these people's minds. Yeah. Um, I'm actually glad that you brought up the puzzle piece conversation, Christian, because it brings up another one of the major motifs of this screenplay, which is the, the idea of a sign or something like that. Characters are constantly talking about, it's a sign, it's a sign that that you should go out with this person, that you this and that person are meant to be together, that you should respond to this letter because this is a sign that this person and you know, you're meant to be together. What did you make of that? Because I think in some respect, it's trying to actively comment on the idea that movies create these sort of unrealistic expectations for real life romance and we get caught looking for signs in real life when in reality we just kind of got to look for a connection with another person but it it sort of makes sense and in, in, in this movie where we have these people who are separated by distance but tied together at the heart who find their way to each other kind of makes sense to have everybody in their life constantly talking about signs so what did you make of that just 
throughout the movie because it happens from very early on um, to you know near the end. I don't. The signs weren't what got me. I thought that it was cute, but the use of signs as motifs did underlie the "there is one person for you." So I, I don't know if I was emphasized on the signs, but I was emphasized on you have a soulmate, and you must do whatever it is to follow the uh, the, the chord that will lead to that soulmate. And the words of the great Taylor Swift: "An invisible string tying you to me." follow that along am i right yeah that's right christian do you believe in soulmates christian i do not do you no okay well (laughs) (laughs) hope my wife's not listening to this episode love you does maddie believe in soulmates um i feel like she doesn't i don't know she's a realist about some of these things but i don't know Uh, i'll ask her (laughs) and tell her not to listen to this episode i mean uh well yeah i mean you, you don't see yourself with anyone outside of your wife it's and I true. think that that's <laughs> that's at the core of what a soulmate is except you know I think that you could be one with a lot of other people I, I had a teacher in high school who was trying to un- unpack this notion for us and undercut it who was basically saying that like his, his idea was that because I went to a, a private Christian high school and his idea was that Christians, because of their belief in the sanctity of marriage, could make a marriage work with anybody. So if you chose to get married to a person, even if, you know, in another life you guys would never even be friends, let alone married to each other, you could still make it work. So I sort of agree with that, that. even if it's not from a religious perspective where you don't have, like, a, a Christianity or some other faith undergirding your marriage, I feel like that's the case and that you can get married and make it work with anybody because of what makes relationships work, which is not always passion. <laughs> it's it's okay. a lot of things. Do, do Annie and Sam make it? Do Annie and Sam make it? You know, Christian, this is a movie, and so I'm going to say yes. In real life, probably no, because of the circumstances <laughs> of this relationship. Uh, and, and before we get there, let's talk about the end. So we, we've alluded to this many times already. Brief spoilers for just the details of the scene. You know it's a romantic comedy. You know they get together at the end. If you don't want to have the details of the scene spoiled for you, go ahead and pause the episode now and come back when you finish the movie. But, of course, they both wind up in New York on Valentine's Day. And Annie had written, not actually written, uh, Rosie O'Donnell, Becky, had sent this letter that Annie had thrown away asking Sam to meet her at the top of the Empire State Building on Valentine's Day. Jonah returns the letter, pretending to be his father, and then Jessica books him a plane ticket to New York. He travels alone, and so Sam has to cancel with Victoria and buy a plane ticket to follow him because his eight-year-old son has just flown across the country. And he eventually finds Jonah at the top of the Empire State Building, and Jonah's very sad because Annie did not come, and he had spent the day walking around asking different women if they were Annie. <laughs> that At didn't what work. point do you say, whose child is this? <laughs> Probably way earlier in the day, because when Sam gets there, it is nighttime, and Jonah is still just sitting up there alone. Meanwhile, Annie and Walter are having this beautiful day in New York. They go to pick out some things for their wedding registry. He gives her a ring from his mother, and they sit down to a fancy dinner with the Empire State Building in view, and she is looking out longingly because she realizes it's Valentine's Day. That's the Empire State Building. I know that Becky sent my letter even though I didn't want her to. What if Sleepless in Seattle is up there? And 
She breaks up with this poor man, returns his mother's ring, and he's just super cool about it. <laughs> but he also is understanding because he doesn't want to be with someone who doesn't really want to be with him. Which is fair. Which is fair. And in a moment that I love about this movie, after when Harry met Sally, when Harry runs to Sally on New Year's Eve, now Meg Ryan gets to run, and she runs from this restaurant to the Empire State Building. I mean, she gets in a cab first, but then runs the rest of the way to the Empire State Building. And, of course, there, there's, there's got to be all these dumb barriers in the way. Where at first, she can't go up there, but then, because the observation deck is closed, but then the security guard is like, fine, you can go. And then she gets up there, and Sam and Jonah have just left. They're going down the elevator, and then she's there, and she's alone, and she's sad because she's like, I missed my opportunity. But then she sees the backpack, turns around, and those two are standing right there. Meanwhile, I'm crying on my couch. Back to the movie. They have found each other. They see each other. They can actually talk and have a conversation. They can touch each other, hold hands, and realize that this, this romantic explosion is unfolding. Jonah is all happy because his dream has come true. He's finally gotten his dad to get connected to this woman who's the only letter that he like actually wanted him to follow up on. And they leave. And they leave together. But it's just like, that is a beautiful moment. But how do you justify everything that got them to this moment? <laughs> it's kind of a movie. <laughs> no. I, 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 I said this. I said this about When Harry Met Sally. It is a great use of location. It is a great oh, use of Seattle. It's yes. a great use of the Empire State Building. Um, four, four major American cities featured in this movie because it starts in Chicago, where Sam and Jonah move from, and where the radio show that they call into is based from. They move to Seattle. She lives in Baltimore, and they end up in New York because Nora Ephron is loyal. And, of course... Uh, a great use of location, like you said. Um, whether, you know, getting to see the sort of wistful, Look, cloudy, overcast Seattle weather or ending on the top of the Empire I, State Building. I love stuff. this ending. I love the fact that they go downstairs just as she gets to the top and then she's there and she's like, she's too late. She finds his teddy bear. Oh, and then they come back. The teddy bear. <laughs> they come back up and that is, and that is what ends it. It's, Plus, it's, just an absolute great last line where she's like, Sam. It's nice to meet you. Close elevator doors, roll credits. <laughs> Just like, it's nice to meet you as your ending line. I, I love that little, like, it's a little joke, I guess, because they're, of course, the meet cute has happened at the end, but. Okay, we need to get to some awards, but I think that that is all for Sleepless in Seattle. A hearty recommendation from both of us. Absolutely, yeah. It, it's a movie where I like it slightly less than When Harry Met Sally. I think that is a little bit more of like a, condensed and perfect package i'm sort of spoiling some of my awards thoughts but absolutely a recommend for me on sleepless in seattle so much more we could have said there's so many like little bits and bobs to point out and have fun with but that movie is not rentable on amazon prime of all places but it's rentable a variety of others i watched it through apple tv christian barter from the local library so support your local library and go check out sleepless in seattle make sure you return it in a week or two depending on your library so that somebody else can do the same all right. Awards. I didn't text you this. You did not. So I get to see, you know, see, yeah, see to my pants, heat of the moment, get us some awards. Very easy. Best writing, best performance, best picture. Best writing, best performance, best picture. Best writing. Best writing. I 
think we share it when Harry met Sally? Yes. Okay. I will say, notably, the only script that is Nora solely Ephron solely yeah. writing it, um, Silkwood was shared with, oh, forgetting her name, I, apologies, Alice Arlen, there it is. She shared credit with Alice Arlen, and they received their Oscar nomination edit together. And then, of course, Sleepless in Seattle, uh, I'm not sure how much even Nora Ephron is responsible for. She did the fifth rewrite of it over Jeff Arch's original idea and David S. Ward's punch-up, but great work across all three of them uh, to create a movie as iconic as Sleepless in Seattle, but When Harry Met Sally, Nora Ephron as the sole voice, filled with one-liners and, and quotable lines, filled with great conversations, creating this believable romance of these I mean, characters that you remember, uh, some of the yeah, best moments in a romantic comedy ever, like sitting in the deli faking an orgasm or <laughs> running to Sally on New Year's Eve. So I just think it's the it's a beautiful and perfect setup. Yeah. And consistently goes through the different stages of their life yeah. and, and intercuts wonderfully. Not just great dialogue, but a really like perfect structure yes. to it. All right. Best performance. Who you got? This is, this is a tougher conversation, because, of course, yes. we got Meryl Streep, not only for an Oscar in Silkwood, but we've also got two iconic romantic comedies that don't work without great performances. We have two Meg Ryans. We have two Meg Ryans to choose from. A Tom Hanks. We have Tom Hanks. We have a Billy, Billy Crystal. Crystal. Kurt Russell, if you want, Kurt to, Russell. If you want to go that way. Chris Cher. Cher. Shout out to Cher. Uh, I'm going to make you go first on this one, because you didn't text me the categories and let me think about it. So, <laughs> you go first. It's Meg Ryan from Sleepless in Seattle for me. Meg Ryan from Sleepless in Seattle? I loved it. I loved her. I loved her disposition. I loved the way she looks. I loved how she very, like, poisedly loses control a little bit in order to realize that there is something more that she wants from love in her life. I think it's a believable progression of the character. It And, and, and when, when Tom Hanks just looks at her... And like knows, yeah, I got that. You had all that, all the, all those lovely things to say about Meg Ryan, and I still can't choose between the the various uh, <laughs> performances floating around okay, in my mind. So let me help you. You're not going to choose a performance from Silkwood. Why not, Christian? Why couldn't I choose Meryl Streep and Silkwood? Because you don't believe that. <laughs> I will say, deserving of an Oscar nomination. She she was fantastic in Silkwood. It's a movie that I liked more than you. That's for sure. I am torn between Harry or Sally, I'll be honest, and I think I gotta go with, I gotta go with Meg Ryan from when Harry met Sally. Um, I mean, she, Billy Crystal was a bit of a known commodity at that point, but she was really breaking out. Like, I think the biggest thing she had done before that was maybe being Goose's wife in Top Gun, which is only a couple scenes. And she comes in across from this very well-known comedian and completely holds her own. And their chemistry is outstanding. So much that it's hard to pick between them as like a single best performance. But I just love Meg Ryan and his movies. And it's hard to you know, separate her in some respects from like Nora Ephron, the romantic comedy writer, because she was her muse in some respects for so long. Um, I, I think she's... Differently from Sleepless in Seattle, she's a little more neurotic, much more type A, takes her an hour and a half to make to order a sandwich. <laughs> and, but those are all the reasons why you love Sally. And she, she's just so good in that movie. And the way that she slowly lets her sort of 
defenses down around Harry uh, as their friendship deepens and eventually their romantic bond as well. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's an undeniable performance. I mentioned on the episode last week that if we were redoing the Oscars that year, I would have wanted to find a way to like squeeze her into the Best Actress lineup. So I'll, I'll go with Meg Ryan as well, just in a different movie. All right. Best picture. It's when Harry met Sally. I know. I know, I know, <laughs> I, I know that's what you believe. Christian, what is your best picture? Sleepless in Seattle. Whoa! We got Sleepless in Seattle over when Harry met Sally. Talk I, about it. I, I, don't, I don't know exactly why. I think that there's something about the will they actually see each other. Like, it's not even get together. You assume they will get together if they can just see each other. That, that gets me because it's a movie that is full of so much hope and, and desire and, and, and like love in, in a um, I don't I don't even fully know how to describe it you have two people with this like with a puzzle piece that is missing from their lives and the way that it sets that up um, and when Harry met Sally is a beautiful movie it is a, a staggering staggeringly wonderful movie which is like the inverse of this which is like what if you knew the puzzle piece was there, you were just putting it in incorrectly. But this, this, I think, better captures the loneliness for me, or like the longing that sometimes even a glance reveals so much. So that's the, 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 the quietness and the beauty of Sleepless in Seattle is why I choose it. We didn't, we didn't talk too much about I guess even the atmosphere the atmospheric differences between the two movies where you're pointing out something that's very important in that Sleepless in Seattle is so much more about yearning mm -hmm. and longing than a sort of classic will they won't they kind of story yeah and when Harry met Sally on their ride from college to New York City you're not really wondering like you know they're going to get together but the way that they are as two recent college grads you know that there's there's chemistry there, but more so in like a sarcastic banter. It's, it's not so much romantic. And they see each other again. Harry is still an a-hole and Sally is still a little too uptight. And so that's not a good mix at all. And by the time they're starting to become friends, that, that's when you start to fall in love with them, like the idea of them as a couple. And it's not so much about yearning for them as it, as it is for us in the audience. Of like, you guys are just perfect for each other. But the longing and the melancholy of Sleepless in Seattle mixed in with the, the comedy and the witty script and, and the, a really fun performance from Ross Mollinger, a very young Ross Mollinger across from Tom Hanks, uh, giving that father-son bond. Like, there are just so many different facets to Sleepless in Seattle that differentiate it from When Harry Met Sally. And I, I think When Harry Met Sally is a, I've said it before, I think it's a perfect movie. It's a tight 90-minute package with one of the most iconic romances we will ever get from Hollywood. And to me, it's just hard to top that in, in any conversation where when Harry Met Sally is up for a Best Picture award, <laughs> my allegiances are going to go towards that. But Sleepless in Seattle is barely, uh, barely off the podium for me. It's this easy second-place finisher. It's, yeah, it is it's a fantastic movie. And one of, that I saw even more recently than the first time I saw When Harry Met Sally. I, I looked it up in Letterboxd. First time watching When Harry Met Sally, I think, was January 2020, I want to say. Maybe it was December 2020. Um, 
And first time watching Sleepless in Seattle was July of last year. Nice. So re- revisiting this six months later, basically, and a couple years between this and When Harry Met Sally. So very glad to have now seen both of these movies twice in a pretty short period of time. I'm a huge fan of them both. And although When Harry Met Sally gets my, my Oscar, can't recommend them both enough. Some housekeeping. We will not be doing another rom-com for Nora Ephron episode. Instead, to end the month of January, we'll be doing our top five movies from Sundance. That's right. You may have noticed in previous years we did a sort of bonus episode for Sundance, released kind of off the normal cadence yeah. with the show. This year, we're just going to roll it right in, see it fits naturally in the schedule. Christian and I are going to be watching a lot of movies this upcoming weekend for uh, a lot of the big stuff coming out of Sundance. And we will share our findings with you next week on the show. So stay tuned for that. I will also reveal my intentions for the February blend of the month on that show. So if you're curious about what's coming next, stay tuned. It's going to be a fun one. Amazing. That is our show. And that is our show. Uh, Of course, folks, if you're still here and still listening, thank you so much for listening along. We greatly appreciate it. And there are a few things that you can do to support the podcast. Number one, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if applicable, leave us a rating or a review. Helps us to grow on these platforms to reach new listeners. We would sincerely appreciate it. So please drop those five-star reviews, leave a comment. Helps us feel warm and fuzzy inside, but also helps the show reach more new listeners. You can also send us your feedback at cinemadrippodcast at gmail.com. We are regularly checking that inbox for listener feedback. Would love to get your thoughts on blends of the month for the upcoming year, movies that you're excited about and want us to talk about, or maybe you've got a favorite Nora Ephron movie that we didn't talk about and you want to make sure that it comes up on the show. Maybe you're just a huge Lucky Numbers fan or a Bewitched fan and you want to see it get some love. So send that into the email. We'd love to read out your recommendations here. That's cinemadrippodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow myself in the show on Twitter, Christian on Instagram, and the both of us on Letterboxd, where we are regularly rating and reviewing the things that we are watching. Going to be a lot of Sundance-ish reviews coming out. Well, not ish, but a lot of Sundance like dispatches coming out here uh, pretty soon. So if you want to see some of our early thoughts on these Sundance movies, check it out. Christian, any final thoughts for the folks listening along at home? I'm excited to see what, what happens in Sundance. I am as well. We, we've seen two so far. Uh, and just a little little preview, if you stuck around to this list in the episode, it was Theater Camp, which is directed by Molly Gordon, an actor you may know, and Nick Lieberman. And we watched Fair Play, which is one of the, the big winners so far. Is, uh, Netflix picked it up to distribute it later this year with Phoebe Dinevore from Bridgerton and Alden Ehrenreich, who most people will know as Han Solo from the Solo movie. So two pretty interesting ones so far, I have to say. But I feel like there's going to be some really good stuff for us coming up on Friday, so I'm really excited to check it out. Yes, there is. Alrighty, folks. As always, that's our show. Don't forget to call into your local radio station. You never know what might happen. And this has been the Cinema Drip Podcast.